Good morning. Let's turn to Philippians chapter 1. Last week we introduced the Philippian jailer to you, and we considered Philippians chapter 1 from his perspective. And uh, this week we want to look at chapter 1 from Paul's viewpoint. I'm not going to act out uh, Paul's um, life and uh, thought process because I, I wouldn't do it justice, I'm sure. But Paul wrote a letter to, uh, from prison to the church at Philippi, and that's what we have here, the letter um, to, uh, of uh, Philippians. Paul spent about two years in captivity in this prison in Rome, um, and as I mentioned last week, he stayed in a a house prison or a home prison, and basically he was a prisoner of Rome, and he had to rent a home while he stayed there, and so it was out of his own pocket. His food was out of his own pocket, and so saints provided uh, funds for him to be able to live. But he was chained 24-7 to one of the elite uh, guards of Rome, and that guard was chained to him 18 inches apart uh, for two years. I mean, they rotated the guards, of course, but uh, they were, he was chained, he was captive um, during that time. And so as we read Philippians chapter 1, verses 19 through 26, it's really an intimate look at the inner thoughts of the Apostle Paul as he endures this very challenging trial. And so let's read that together, and then we'll uh, study it. Philippians 1.19, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me... To live is Christ, and to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. Yet what I shall choose, I cannot tell. For I am hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Now, back in uh, um, last week's message, in verse 12, we read this. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so Paul is in this trial. He's in prison. This is, we don't know exactly how long into the trial it is. We know that he was two years in another prison before he was sent here. So he's probably, well, he's at least two years into it, possibly three, possibly even towards the end, four years. So it's been a long, long ordeal. And yet Paul looks at what's happened to him and he says that that this imprisonment, 
this trial that I'm uh, undergoing, the things that have happened to me are actually, uh, they've actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. And so he looks at the trial and he says, ah, I see that the Lord is at work. He's at work in my life. He's at work in the lives of other believers. And God is actually causing all things to work together for good. And so he rejoices in that. He's not rejoicing in the trial itself, but he's rejoicing at what God is doing uh, in his life and in the lives of others. And so this morning, I want to stop for just a minute and think about trials in our lives. And uh, the Bible teaches us very, very plainly that as believers, trials are inevitable. We will face trials. If you haven't faced a trial in your life, you will. Okay? Just that simple. And so it should not surprise us if as believers we suffer, we undergo persecution, or we face some trial in some way in our lives. Trials are inevitable. And I'm going to read three verses. I could read many, many more verses, but these three sections of Scripture will underscore that. James 1, 2 through 4 says this, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The when there indicates that we will. And when you do, count it all joy, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. There again, we underscore what Paul said in Romans, that all things work together for good. God is at work in your life. He's changing you to be more like Christ. He's giving you the thing that, that you've cried out for. Lord, I need patience. And then when you ask for that, he gives it to you. And it comes by way of a trial. That's how you get patience. So I'm not saying don't pray that way. But pray that you might be more like the Lord Jesus. In Matthew chapter 10, Jesus told his disciples, and he, and he told us as well, that, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, do not worry about how or what you should speak, for it will be given to you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father who speaks in you. Now brother will deliver up brother to death, and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved." When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And here's the part that I want to emphasize in this section. A disciple is not above his teacher. Is this how they treated the Lord Jesus? Yes. If you are a follower of Jesus, you can expect the same treatment. Because a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for a disciple that he be like his teacher and a servant uh, like his master. If they have called the master of the house, that is Jesus, Beelzebub, how much more will they call those of his household? Therefore do not fear them, 
for there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And so the Lord says to us, as he did to his disciples, you're going to be persecuted. If you're going to take a stand for me, if you're going to live for me, expect persecution. It's going to come. And here's how to handle it. Here's what to expect. And finally, third section is in 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 12. And it says this, but you have carefully, Paul is speaking, and he says, but you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endure, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So again, trials, persecution, suffering, it is inevitable. It is part of the Christian life. So what lesson can we learn from Paul from his attitude here in Philippians chapter 1? Again, I think back at the Philippian jailer as, as he's reading this letter and he's listening to what Paul is saying and he remembers the circumstances back in that Philippian jail and uh, when Paul and Silas were um, cast into the middle of the prison and in the middle of the night, in the middle of their trial, they sang praise to God. And so I want to ask you a question and ask myself the same question. When you're faced with a trial... Are you a singer or are you a complainer? Are you a singer or are you a grumbler? Are you the proverbial glass half full or glass half empty kind of a Christian? Which is it? Do you look at your circumstances and say, this is great. The Lord has me in this situation. The glass is half full. The Lord is going to do something wonderful in the midst of this trial that I'm facing. The Lord loves me enough to put me through this to work out his own glory in my life. That's great. That's the glass half full. The glass half empty um, is a person who is discouraged by his trial. And rather um, than looking for what good God is doing in the midst of his trial, he's more like the children of Israel who grumbled and complained in their trials in the wilderness. Paul soars to new heights of praise to the Lord because God is good and God is working all things together for good. From a human standpoint, our trials don't appear like that to us. But faith steps in and says, the things that have happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. When trials come your way, are you more like the grumblers in the desert wilderness? Or are you more like Paul who sees that God's plan is bigger than his trial and that God's plan for Paul is good for him and brings glory to God? Brothers and sisters, when you face a trial, remember that God is good and that God is doing something good in your life. Believe that because it is true. Look for ways to bring glory to God in your darkest night, in your severest trial, because God is working out something amazing in your life. Whether you see it or not, that is what he is doing.
like Paul, see the glass as half full, even though the trial is not over. So in uh, verses 19 and 20, it says this, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance or salvation through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I'm going to stop here for a second. Um, just as an aside, I was thinking about this this morning, that how similar this passage of Scripture is to Psalm 34. So just make a note to yourself and go and read Psalm 34 this afternoon, and you will see how closely linked that passage is with this passage. Because in Psalm 34, it says things like this, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And here Paul is saying that in the midst of the trial, what he really longs for more than anything else is that Christ will be magnified in his body. And there in Psalm 34, it says this of those who are suffering trials, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. In other words, the psalmist is saying, look, yeah, we're going through trials, but the Lord is going to deliver me from this trial. And so let's exalt the Lord. He wasn't delivered yet. But he says, let's exalt the Lord anyway. Let's magnify his name. Let us exalt his name together. If that is our attitude in the middle of, of our trials, we will be like Paul and Silas, singing at midnight in the midst of our chains. Well, when I was a young man, <clears throat> young boy, my parents used to uh, take us from Vancouver over to Vancouver Island where my grandparents lived. My dad's parents lived in a little town called Shemanus. And so we would have to take... Uh, city streets to a highway to a place called Horseshoe Bay. Then in Horseshoe Bay, we would get on a ferry that would take us over to a town called Nanaimo. Once we got there, we would drive down half the island to a little town called Shemanus. And we would do this once or twice a year. It was a family adventure, and we'd pack all our stuff in the car, and all, all four kids and the parents would be in the car. And we would drive probably, I don't know, 10 minutes from the house, and inevitably one of us would say, are we there yet? Right? Anybody who has children, any parent who has children, have heard this phrase. And uh, the, the trip would usually take about three to four hours, and we were 10 minutes into it, and this was our first question. Are we there yet? We want to know when the journey's going to be over. Is it, is it done? Are we finished? Are we there yet? And we are not really that much different than our children as adults, are we? When we're faced with a trial, the trial has barely started, and we go, Lord, are we there yet? Is it over yet? And the next day we wake up, Lord, are we there yet? Is it finished? Well, if we really want to get to where we're going, we have to endure the whole trip. <laughs> And we would, and then we'd get there and enjoy the time. And it's the same with our trials. If we've started into a trial or we're halfway there, we're not at the finish line yet. We're getting there. The Lord will take us to the finish line, but we're not quite there yet. You know, I think again of the children of Israel. You know, it was a marvelous thing that the Lord did for them. Here they were standing at the edge of the Red Sea, 
And right behind them were the Egyptian armies chasing after them, and they were about to swallow them up and push them into the Red Sea. And the Lord, through a mighty miracle, opened up the, the sea, parted the waters, allowed them to cross on dry land, and got to the other side. They no sooner got to the other side, they turned around, and they saw the Lord take the waters. The Egyptians were now in the middle of it with their chariots, and their chariot wheels were getting stuck, and they were trying to get across to capture the Israelites to bring them back, and the Lord took the water and swallowed them up whole. And they witnessed the whole thing. And as a matter of fact, Miriam wrote a song on the riverbank that afternoon, or that morning, or whatever time it was, and she wrote a song of the victory of God and how he had swallowed them up in the sea. And they were all singing praises to the Lord. What a wonderful thing the Lord has done. Victory is ours. Now we're going to the promised land. Wow, I'm thirsty. <laughs> wow, I'm hungry. And immediately, it wasn't just that they sensed their need, but it's that they complained about it. They grumbled about it. Lord, you brought us over here to kill us with thirst. Did you not just see what I did? Did you not just see me take out your enemies? Yeah, but I'm hungry. I'm hungry. You brought us out here to kill us. Seriously. And you say, well, what foolish people those Israelites were. And then I have to look at my own heart in the midst of a trial. And do I say the same thing or similar things? Lord, why have you made my life so miserable? Why have you caused this to happen to me? And we forget the goodness of God. And we forget that the Lord is at work in our lives, really about to do a marvelous thing. His purpose, his intention was to bring the children of Israel to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. That was his purpose. We see the, uh, James says something similar of Job, and he's trying to instruct us in the middle of trials, and he says this. He says, remember Job and the end intended by the Lord. Job's trial was not to crush him. Job's trial was to show the goodness of God in the midst of suffering and what God's plan was to, to uh, give him abundantly. And so if you're in the middle of a trial, if you're in the middle of suffering right now, that's not the end of the story. The last chapter has not been written. God is about to do something wonderful in your life. Are we there yet? Lord, deliver me from having a grumbling, bitter heart. Because that is the tendency that I wrestle with in my own heart. Lord, grant to me that I would not have a grumbling, bitter heart. Paul thought of this question. Are we there yet? He had spent two years in another prison. Now he's in prison in Rome. And Paul was not given a calendar with a checkout date. He didn't know. He didn't know when it would be. And as a matter of fact, as we read the rest of this section, we'll find out that he's not even sure yet, as during this, in the middle of his trial, he wasn't sure whether he would actually live or die whether the exit from the trial would be life or would be death. And neither do we when we're faced a trial in our lives. So as I said, in Psalm 34, it says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. And I was thinking this morning that perhaps, I, I, I can't prove it, but perhaps Paul, as he was writing this passage, or right before he wrote it, 
Perhaps he was meditating on Psalm 34, where it says, many are the afflictions. And Paul says, that's me. I'm going through another affliction. And the Lord delivers him out of them all. And by faith, did Paul read that and say, Lord, is that for me? Are you speaking that to me? And he trusted the Lord for it. Because clearly he tells, by the end of this section, he tells the Philippian um, Christians that he will be delivered. And so Paul says um, he had faith that, that he would be saved or delivered from the trial, but his deliverance would come only as a result of two things. And the first thing is the prayers of the believers at Philippi. Do you realize how important it is for us to pray? Not only to pray, but to pray corporately. And that the prayers that are offered by the saints affect world issues. They affect weather. They affect uh, governments rising to power or falling from power. Our prayers are palpable. They are felt and answered in heaven. And I think sometimes we don't, <laughs> we don't appreciate that as much as we should. But Paul is saying here that my deliverance is going to be based on your prayers for me. Paul was facing a life and death situation. And as he wrestled with whether he would live or die, the Lord must have assured him that he would be delivered from death, but his deliverance would come as a result of the faithful prayers of those in uh, Philippi. James says something very similar. He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. And then he illustrates it and says, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Now, I don't know about you, but any of you who have followed the weather um, recognize that um, it wasn't but two years ago that um, every forecaster in the Bay Area, whether they had Doppler radar or not, all said something very similar. They were all preaching the same tune. Even if we had a massive rain and, and a snowfall beyond all proportion, it would not take away the drought. And when I heard that, I said, let my God show you something. <laughs> and we prayed, and we prayed together in this room, and we've prayed often, Lord, we are facing a drought. We are in serious uh, water conditions. Lord, please open the heavens and pour out for us a blessing that we cannot contain. And now they're saying that we are completely out of a drought, something that California has not experienced in many, many, many years, and that uh, we have so much water that uh, it's, I, I think in, in March they said we're, in some of the snowpacks, 175% of average. I mean, it's like way over what we need. And God once again steps in and proves that the effective, fervent prayer of righteous believers affects change. And so it did. And so who gets credit for that? I don't hear them getting on the, on the weather report and saying, clearly we were wrong. Clearly we spoke against God. 
And clearly God has spoken and clearly God is in charge. They go, well, we still have to save water. <laughs> and maybe we do. But honestly, God has done a marvelous thing. If he can do that with the weather, if, if like when he was with the disciples and he spoke when, in the stormy sea and he caused the, rain, the, the wind and the waves to stop, and he says to them, oh, ye of little faith. You know, God can do anything. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? And the Philippians must have been encouraged to learn that the Lord had heard their prayers and that Paul was not going to be executed, but he was going to be delivered from his imprisonment. And this is one of the good things that came as a result of the trial of Paul. And the Philippians learned how important their prayers were in contributing to that deliverance. Again, I think we underestimate the value of our prayers before the Lord. And it's not about us, but it's about appealing to the only one who can make the change happen, and that's to the Lord. So the question naturally arises, what if they hadn't prayed? What if they hadn't prayed? And what blessings do we obtain from our prayers and what blessings do we forfeit when we do not pray? pray? And that's the question I think we should ask ourselves. So the second thing Paul says uh, that will lead to his um, release is the supply or support of the spirit of Jesus Christ who would aid him in his deliverance. The spirit of Jesus Christ is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit ministers to believers and comforts them and encourages them because that is part of his ministry. So we can expect that in the midst of a trial uh, that the Holy Spirit will come alongside of us as believers and minister to us, comforting us, encouraging us, giving us words of comfort from the Word of God, and uh, that we will find verses that we forgot even existed in the Scripture and say, oh, the Lord is actually speaking to me through that psalm, through that verse. Um, and it will give us strength in our weakness, joy in our sorrow, peace in our turmoil, and love in the midst of hatred. And it is also true that the trials, uh, that in the trials God does not allow us to endure more suffering than we are able to endure. God has a limit. And if you remember in Job's trial, uh, uh, Satan wanted to destroy him. And the Lord said, basically, here's the line, and don't cross over that line. And the Lord does that in every single trial in our lives. He does not allow us to suffer more than we are able. He's made that promise to us, and his promise is sure. In Philippians 1.20, it says, According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. You know, when you go through a trial, when I go through a trial, I tend to be slowed down. 
um, I tend to kind of stop, and I have to do a lot of thinking. Why has this come upon me? What is the Lord trying to teach me? What is going on here? Why am I going through this trial? And it's good. I think the Lord wants us to slow down sometimes and think through what's going on in our life. And so sometimes you have to ask the question, not just are we there yet, but is he ever going to deliver us from this? In one case with Paul, he was given a thorn in the flesh and the Lord chose not to deliver him from it, but gave him grace to endure with that uh, suffering. But we often ask ourselves, am I going to suffer forever? Will it ever end? You know, that's usually a question we ask. And what is the Lord doing in my life and what lessons am I supposed to learn from this? And Paul tells the Philippians and us what went on in his mind during this trial. And so it says that the Lord gave him the earnest expectation. And what that, um, to illustrate it, it would be like this. If you're looking ahead at something, um, let's say you're trying to see a site, and it's kind of not, you can't quite see it, or there's people in your way, there's something blocking your way, you tend to stretch your body and your neck as far as you can so you can see over and as far as you can, right? Sometimes you might even use binoculars. That's what Paul is describing here, is that as I thought through this trial, as I thought through what the Lord is doing, I, I stretched my neck as far as it would go to look, to see what God was about to do um, in my life. And as far as I could see into the future, God has given me the assurance and the hope that no matter what the future holds, I will not be ashamed. I will not stand before him ashamed at what I did or did not do during this trial. The Lord was not going to allow Paul's reputation and ministry to be smeared. If he gained his freedom, there would be no cloud hanging over his head that he had done something wrong, that there would be charges against him that would stick, and he would be free to preach the gospel. If the trial resulted in his martyrdom, then even this would bring glory to God. And so this comforted Paul and made him bold to face either release or death. And so he says uh, that he wanted to see Christ magnified. That is Christ exalted. Uh, Christ um, puffed. <laughs> I know that sounds like a funny word to use. Some years ago um, when Billy Graham was, was preaching down in Los Angeles and he was having one of his first crusades, there was, uh, it became known that this crazy man was down there preaching in the open air uh, the gospel. And uh, um, Hearst, who was the owner of many, many newspapers, San Francisco newspapers and other newspapers, told his reporters, puff Graham. In other words, exalt him, make him known. And that's really the same word that is, is described here, is that make Christ known, whether in life or in death. Uh, magnify him in, his in our bodies, whether by life or death. In Philippians 1.21, it says that, Paul says this, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You know, some people live for fame. They want their name on a Hollywood star, your name here, you know. I was going to put up another one 
like this that says John Doe because we, so many people desire fame like this, to have some, some um, uh, um, recognition. And then I saw another one that said John Doe. <laughs> I thought, you know, by the time they die, nobody remembers them. I've walked Hollywood uh, walk of fame and I look at names and I go, whatever. Don't know who that is. <laughs> I don't care. And I, I, it doesn't matter to me. But those people lived for that kind of fame. And I don't even know who they are. Some people live for pleasure. And they're pursuing it. And it's an uphill battle. They'll never find the pleasure that satisfies. Some people live for money or possessions. And Paul said for, to me, to live is Christ. What do you live for? I mean, what do you really live for? What is the purpose, the direction, the, the desire, the passion of your life? So many people are like what uh, Solomon describes in Ecclesiastes. They are chasing the wind. They pursue one thing after another, and it all ends in emptiness, just chasing the wind. When a famous person dies, he or she is soon forgotten. When a person lives for pleasure, when they die, his desires die with him. And when a person who lives for money dies, he takes nothing with him. And what was gain is now loss. It's all left behind. If we chase after those things, it's like chasing the wind. It's there, but you can never grasp it. You can never hold on to it. It always slips through our hands. And when you die, you lose it all. Only Christ satisfies us in this life. And then when you die, you gain him. When you live for Christ, to die is gain. If we live for Christ, when we die, we gain Christ. We go to be with him. And we live with him forever. And that's why Paul said that for, to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Can we really say that in our lives? Is that really our motivation for living and our motivation for dying? So as Paul thinks through his imprisonment and impending death, he explains what he means. He says, but if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor. So on one hand, if I live, well, there's something good in that, and that is that I will serve the Lord and there will be fruit that comes as a result of it. Yet, what I shall choose, I cannot tell, for I'm hard-pressed between the two. Well, what's the other? If that's the one, what's the other? Death. It's either life or death. If I live, I can serve the Lord, I can see fruit. If I die, I'm with Christ, which is far better. I'm hard-pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful to you. And so, there, it's like... He's got this conflict going on in his mind. If I live, there's fruit, and it's really better for the, for the believers. It's really better for the Philippians if I live, and I can help them in, in their growth and their maturity and seeing other churches planted. So there's real benefit there. But the thing that I want more than anything else, anything else in my life, is I just want to be with Christ. I just wish this were all over and I were with him and in his presence, and worshiping the Lord who loved me and gave himself for me. That's what I want more than anything else. 
But then I know the believers still need me. And I need to help them and, and encourage them. But, oh, I want to be with Christ. And you see this conflict going on in his, in his, in his mind, in his heart. Living means more fruit. And it means storing up more treasure in heaven. But, I don't know, have you ever been in a situation in your life where you were faced with this kind of conflict? Maybe it's not life and death. Maybe it's something simpler than that. You have two or three or four um, equally good things. Neither one of them is uh, sinful. There's no choice that's better than the other. So I'm going to put up a map here. I just I'll pull. You may not be able to see this too clearly, but this is um, way up there is Costco wholesale. You know the Costco over there on Alvarado. I mean on uh, Hesperian and Industrial. Okay, so it's we're often there at least once a week. And so I did a map of how to get to from Costco to Calvary Bible Chapel, which is right here. And Google Maps came up this morning with uh, three alternate routes. And uh, the first route is to go down Hesperian Boulevard uh, to Alvarado and to the chapel. And that would take nine minutes to do that. The second route was to go back industrial to the freeway, down the freeway and back up to the chapel. And that would take nine minutes. And then the third alternative was to go down and. Uh, um, uh, Union City Boulevard to, I think it's Whipple, and then down to Dyer, and then to um, uh, Alvarado. And that one would take nine minutes. So I'm now stuck at Costco trying to decide which way I should go. I have three possible alternatives before me, and now life is really a drag. What am I supposed to do? Each of the three ways is completely legitimate. If I choose one over the other, it is not sinful to go the freeway versus the side street. And no matter what I choose, I'm going to get here in nine minutes. And that's just the way it is. And so I bow my head and I say, Lord, which way should I go? I'm torn between three alternatives, which are completely legitimate ways of going. And I ask you, Lord, please direct my steps. And I don't hear an answer. I think the choice is neutral, and the choice is left up to me, and so I make a choice. I make a decision, and I decide to drive down um, uh, Hesperian to, yeah, start down on Hesperian Boulevard. And as I'm driving down Hesperian Boulevard, it's a beautiful sunny day, and I can see, as far as I can see down the road, and up ahead, just before, just after Whipple, there's a big truck that does a funny turn on the road and all of its load spills across the road in front of me. That is no longer an alternative, but I'm right before Whipple. And so I saw the three alternatives and I make a turn on Whipple and I go the back road, you know, zigzag, and I finally get here and it took me exactly nine minutes, okay? And so no matter which way I chose, it was gonna be nine minutes. But I had made a choice of going a certain way and my choice was disrupted. And I could say that the Lord disrupted my choice by allowing that truck <clears throat> to lose its load and prevent me from going that direction. It wasn't the way I planned to get here, but I still got here. And so the Bible says to us, trust in the Lord with all your heart 
and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your steps and you will eventually get to the end of your life. It may not be the way you chose to get there, but if you trust in the Lord, he will direct your steps, just like this map shows. This is just a simple illustration that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. So when I get to the chapel, I turn on my news and I see the news report that there was an accident at the on-ramp of Industrial and 880 South. And it happened at just about the time I would have been entering onto the freeway. Now this is a made up story, okay? But the reality is, if only we knew as much as God knows, these changes of circumstance in life, these trials that come our way, these difficulties that present themselves to us, quite often I think if we really knew the whole story, we would see that God was actually preventing us from something far, far worse. And he is guiding our steps along the way. A simple illustration of life and life choices. Now, you're going to be faced with life choices. And uh, sometimes you're going to come to a crossroad, something like this. Uh, you graduate from high school or you graduate from college and you have two equal opportunities before you. You've got job, two jobs that are great jobs. They, they pay the same, same benefits, same everything, and you're standing there looking at these two jobs and say, well, which one should I choose? They seem equal in every way. How do you decide? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. He's, it's a promise from God. You want to buy a car, and you're looking at two cars that seem completely equal to you in every way. Which one do you choose? Or you want to buy a house, and they both seem completely equal. Same price, same everything. One's in one neighborhood, one's in another neighborhood, but everything seems the same. And you say, well, which one do I choose? Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean in your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Two ministries are open before you. Seem to be equally uh, fruitful. Which is the right direction? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. I'm going to keep saying that for every decision of life. And I'm going to keep saying it and keep saying it and keep saying it. My grandmother was a godly woman. She gave me a Bible when I was a young boy. And that is the verse that she put in the very front flyleaf of, of the Bible. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. Whether it's a big thing or a little thing, a big decision or a little decision, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your steps. Do you believe that? You can make decisions. It's not that you're stymied and you can't make a decision. Of course, make decisions. But even in making the decisions, I have found out over and over again in life that as I'm, as I'm going down Hesperian Boulevard and the truck loses its load, I have to make a change. And the Lord allows those things. And that's the Lord allowing us or causing us to have to change directions to suit himself and his purposes. At one time in Paul's ministry, he was faced with a decision like this. He wanted to take the gospel to Asia. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with bringing the gospel news to, to Asia? Nothing. It was perfectly legitimate. It was perfectly right. But the Lord prevented him 
from taking the gospel to Asia. And there was a man from Macedonia in a, in a dream that he had uh, saying, come over to us. And Paul recognized that the Lord was directing his steps not to go to Asia, but instead go to Macedonia. And you are sitting here today because of that choice, because Paul brought the gospel ultimately to Europe, which led to coming to here, and you heard the gospel. He will direct your steps. Paul was faced again with a life decision. If left to his own choice, whether to stay and, be, and minister to the Philippians or to just take me, Lord, I want to go home. If he had his own choice, I think he would have chosen to go to heaven because he says it's far better. And it is. But it may not be the Lord's will yet. And so if he were to, uh, he would rather die, that means be executed, for then he'd be with Christ. But if he were to continue, it would be for the greater benefit of believers who were still here on earth, and particularly those in Philippi. And at this time in their life experience and their spiritual maturity, they still needed Paul. They needed him, and the Lord knew that. And so Paul was willing to even give up his natural, normal desire to be finished with it all and be in heaven and to serve instead the needs of the saints. And when that decision was made by the Lord and the Lord showed it to Paul, I do not hear him grumbling. I do not hear him complaining. I do not hear him like the children of Israel saying, why? Okay. In fact, instead, he talks about rejoicing. Paul's, both choices were of equal value, but Paul recognized that by staying, it would be for his benefit and for the joy of the Philippians uh, because he remained. And Paul knew that the outcome would be, for he writes this in verses 25 and 26. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And so the final outcome of this, of this trial, of this dilemma, of these choices that Paul was making there in prison was that he would finally fully be released from prison and it would re he would remain alive and would be able to continue to encourage growth and ministry of the believers in Philippi and that their sorrow that they were experiencing because he was in prison would turn to joy when he came to them again. Paul was willing and content to let the Lord make the choice for him. And the Lord did. And the Lord allowed him to continue to serve. And Paul recognized that even in this, all things work together for good to those who love him and are called according to his purpose. So, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to think about the trials that you're in, or the trials you will face, because they are inevitable. When you fall into various trials, know that the Lord is up to something good in your life. Every good gift and every perfect gift comes from him. That's what the scripture says. He is for you. He is not against you. And sometimes in the midst of trials, we think, why is the Lord against me? That's a lie from the pit of hell. 
Okay? The scripture says he is for us. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He tells us that. God is for us. When you're faced and tossed between two different decisions, two different ways, have him overrule your will. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths or your steps. Why? Because he knows what's best for you. He knows what is the best thing for you. He knows what will bring you the greatest joy, and he knows what will bring him the greatest glory. Let him have his way in your life. And make it your aim to look at your trials as an opportunity to live for Christ and to magnify the Lord, exalt him, puff him, glorify him. Let us exalt the Lord. Let us magnify the Lord and let us exalt his name uh, together. Lord, we just come before you this morning. We thank you that you allow trials to come into our life and we recognize, Lord, as we see the lives of Paul and Job and so many other believers in the past that you have a purpose and a plan in them all and that, Lord, sometimes it's to redirect our steps to a different path that is better for us and is a greater glory for you. Lord, help us not to be like the children of Israel who wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and died and their carcasses were strewn across the desert because they would not trust you and they would not glorify you. Lord, help us to glorify you in the midst of trials, to honor you, to praise you, to worship you, to thank you for what you're doing, and recognize, Lord, that you are good and that you do good. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.